Take your copy of the Scriptures, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Our passage is verse 1 to verse 9. I mentioned just a moment ago that we're reading through the New Testament together this year, five chapters a week. One of the helpful things to do when you're studying the Scriptures, in particular when you're studying the letters of Paul, is to go back and to read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the history book of the early church. There's not all of the information, all of the detail that we may want. It doesn't answer all of the questions that we may have, but is a helpful resource when you're going through the letters that Paul wrote to churches, the letters that Paul wrote to pastors, and reading what was actually happening in the early church through the ministry of Paul there in the book of Acts. So that's how we're going to start this morning. Acts chapter 11 tells us something interesting, tells us that the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas with an offering for the suffering Christians in Judea, in Jerusalem. There was a famine, there were people who were hungry, they didn't have enough food to eat, there were Christians in Antioch who said, hey, we can help with that need. And this was an interesting development, a new development in the book of Acts. Up to this point in Acts... What you see is individual churches coming together to help their own. This is the first time you see an individual church, the church in Antioch, coming together to help someone outside of their church, saying, hey, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ in Judea. We're doing well. They're not. In this opportunity, we could send relief and we could help them. So that's Acts chapter 11. If you keep reading... To Acts chapter 18, you learn another interesting detail. You learn about the time when the Apostle Paul went to Corinth and planted the church in Corinth. Now, some of the parts of that story are familiar to Paul's experience, and at least one part of that story is unique to Paul's experience. Paul rolled into town. He started preaching. He started teaching. He started talking about Jesus as the Messiah, and immediately he faced opposition. That was normal. Paul's inclination was to leave Corinth and to let someone else finish the work that had just barely been started. But in a dream, in a vision, this was unusual, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul and said, I don't want you to go anywhere. Paul, I want you to stay put. Paul, Jesus said, I have people in this city, so I need you to stay. What's interesting about that statement, I have people in this city, is that when Paul looked around at the church in Corinth, there weren't many people in the church. And what's interesting, it's a fascinating insight, we won't spend much time dwelling on this, but we ought to note it, is that the Lord Jesus knew His people in Corinth even before they knew Him. This is Jesus right out of the Gospel of John, the Good Shepherd knows His sheep. He knows their names. They listen to His voice. The shepherd knows his sheep. Jesus knew who His people were in Corinth, and so Paul stayed, and he preached, and he taught, and he made disciples, and he raised up leaders in this church. Last week, we talked about the history, and I told you it was a complicated history between Paul and the church in Corinth. Paul planted the church, then he left. 
They exchanged a number of letters back and forth. We have two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Paul made many visits to this church. Some of them were good visits. Some of them he describes as painful visits. Some of them he describes as awkward visits. It was a complicated history between Paul and the church in Corinth. This book, 2 Corinthians, comes at the end of that history. And basically, you can divide 2 Corinthians into three chunks, three pieces. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 is Paul's attempt to strengthen the church in Corinth. He's trying to encourage them. Chapters 8 and 9, which is what we're going to focus on, talks about giving and stewardship and money and how to think about these matters. Then the last part, chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, is Paul calling the church to repent, meaning there were still some people in Corinth who did not want to listen to Paul, and they wanted to listen to the super apostles that we talked about last week. They didn't want to listen to what Paul had to say, but they wanted to listen to these other celebrity traveling preachers. So our focus is chapter 8, our focus is chapter 9, and let me just bring it full circle back to what we talked about in Acts 11. Paul was about to visit Corinth, and he's writing this letter to say, I'm on my way, and when I come, I'm going to ask you for money. I'm not asking for money from you so that I can pad my pockets and line my pockets like the super apostles. I'm going to ask for money for this relief, this famine relief for the starving Christians who are in Judea, who are in Jerusalem, and he's telling them up front, I'm coming to town, I'm collecting an offering, and I want you to be involved in giving to this offering. So he's talking about the issue of money and stewardship. Here's the big idea of our passage. Those who have been saved by God's grace, if you claim this morning to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, that's you. Somebody who has been saved by the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Someone who has been saved by God's grace ought to be generous with their money. That's Paul's point in this passage. So, take your copy of the Scriptures. Let's read together what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-9. The Word of God says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel 
in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. That's the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning is Your people. We thank You for the grace of the Lord Jesus. We thank You for Jesus who humbled Himself by becoming a servant, becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we thank You that Jesus left the throne of heaven that we might become rich, eternally rich. Father, we pray for people in this room who have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus. They have never been saved by Your grace, and we pray that that would happen today. Father, for those of us who have been saved by Your grace, we pray that You would help us to be generous and help us to understand what You're teaching us in these verses. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to put some numbers on the screen. These numbers represent days leading up to important things. And I'll just see if you have any idea about things that are coming up on the calendar. These are all things you need to know about. We'll start at the bottom of this list and work towards matters of greater importance. Twenty. Twenty days until college football. That's exactly right. Real college football in 20 days. How about 61 days until Permian versus OHS? Or if you prefer, I said it the other way in the first service, OHS versus Permian. Rivalry game in town. Maybe you have a dog in that fight. I don't care who wins. I'll be at the tailgate party. I'll have a hamburger. I'll be looking for you. OHS Permian, Permian OHS, 61 days. What about the big number? 189 days. A lot of people in the first service guess Christmas. No, we're overshooting Christmas with 189 days. 189 days until the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl. 189 days. I hope you're excited now. 189 days. Football, football, football. Americans love football, and it's almost football season. We watch Monday night football. We sort of take a break on Tuesday. We get into football Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then we just do it all over again all the way through the fall. Americans love football. And one of the things Americans love about football is a rivalry. Now, I'll just be honest with you. Football is not my favorite sport. Basketball is my favorite sport. We're in the middle of baseball season. Some of you would say baseball is your favorite sport. But whatever your favorite sport is, and mine is not football, football is best suited to rivalries. It's because you can get out on the field and you can smash into each other. You can take all that frustration out on the football field, and Americans love a good rivalry, especially college rivalries or high school football rivalries. I'm convinced 
that if I could take you, put you in a time machine, send you back to first century Rome with a football and a rule book, and you went around with the Apostle Paul and you let him do the Bible teaching and you introduced the game of football to these first century Romans, I'm convinced that you would find natural rivals between a province called Macedonia in the north and a province called Achaia in the south. So I'll just put the map on the screen. You see the boot of Italy on the left. You see what we would call Turkey over on the right. And there in the middle is what we would call Greece, the nation of Greece. And there's two Roman provinces here. It's one nation now, but it was divided into two parts in Paul's day. Macedonia is up in the north, and you see Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi. Those are all Bible places you can read about. And then down in the south in Achaia, you see the port cities of Athens and Corinth. We have evidence, ancient documents, that tell us that these two regions did not like each other. They did not think highly of each other. They were rivals in many ways, and if they played football back then, they would be rivals on the gridiron. Just to be very blunt with you, the people up north in Macedonia, it was a little more rural, a little more blue-collar, and they tended to look at the folks down in Corinth and Athens as a bunch of snobbish, white-collar, all you do is sit around and read books, you're just interested in philosophy. You don't know how to do real work and get your hands dirty. You're basically kind of softies down there in the south. And to be fair, the people down in the south, in Corinth and in Athens, they looked up at the folks in Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, more rural regions, and they said, basically, we don't even think you've ever read a book. We're not even sure you know how to read a book. You're a bunch of country bumpkins. All you're good for is manual labor. You don't think important thoughts. You don't think about big ideas. And this natural rivalry existed between the two. Paul, when he wrote 2 Corinthians, was up north in Macedonia, writing to a church down south in Corinth. And he plays on this rivalry. In verse 1, 2 Corinthians 8, he says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And he begins to talk about the generosity of the churches up north. And you understand what he's doing. He's playing on this natural rivalry to say, you don't want the, the churches in Macedonia to outdo you, do you? You don't want them to give more than you. It might be like your pastor standing up and saying, hey, there's a church over in Midland that did this. You're not going to let the Midlanders beat you, are you? Oh, come on. It's Midland. It might be like your pastor standing up and saying, did you hear what the Methodists did? Are you really going to let the Methodists beat you? Come on, have a little Baptist pride. Get your act together. And Paul's picking up on this natural rivalry, not to be divisive, and really not even just to be funny, but ultimately to say something important about the question of stewardship. Stewardship is an important biblical concept. Stewardship boils down to this question. It's very simple. What are you 
going to do with God's money that He has entrusted to you? That's the question. None of the money you have actually belongs to you. God has given it to you, or as people like to say now, I don't like the phrase, He's gifted it to you. He has placed it in your care on loan, and you are a steward, and someday you will give an account. So how are you going to use the money that God has put under your responsibility? That's the question this morning, and this passage is dealing with that question. And the question that we want to answer is very simple. How does this passage inform our thoughts about stewardship? I want you to see three truths. We'll spend the most time on the first We'll expand it and try to unpack it, and then we'll come to the last two. So here is the first truth. How does this passage inform our thoughts about stewardship? Number one, in the economy of the gospel, joy plus poverty equals generosity. That only works in a gospel economy. It does not work in a pagan economy. It does not work in the world's economy. It only works in a gospel economy. It only works in the lives of people who have God-given joy because their sins have been forgiven because God has gone to the greatest length in sending His Son to die for sinners. He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. People who know that and believe that are filled with joy. And look how Paul describes it in verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And, not just their poverty, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's almost time for kids to go back to school. I hate to be the bearer of bad news or good news. Kids are going back to school, which means my kids are going to go to math class which means that they're going to come home with worksheets. And they're going to sit down with dad or mom, and they're going to say, dad or mom, I need help with this math problem. Dad and mom both have accounting degrees. We can do the math. So we're going to sit down with our children, and we're going to say, okay, here's what you do. Step one. And we're going to begin to explain the math problem. And we're going to get about halfway through step one, and our kids are going to look at us and say, that's not the way we do it. I don't even know what you're talking Are you speaking a foreign language right now? Dad, you have to draw a picture to do this math problem. Dad, you have to have boxes or this or whatever it may be. That's not how we do it. The math doesn't work that way in their brain. Look, this is gospel math. It only works. The formula only balances for people who have God-given joy because their sins have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the math. Their joy in being saved combined with extreme poverty equals generosity. Equals generosity. Now let's talk about that concept of generosity. Paul describes it in verse 3 and verse 4. So let's just break it down. What does generosity mean? look like? What is it? First of all, generosity looks different depending on your financial situation. It looks different depending on your financial situation. 
Look at verse 3. They gave according to their means. They gave according to their means, talking about the Christians in Macedonia. On the whole, they were poorer than the Christians down south. But Paul says they gave according to their means. Just take one minute and look around the room. Actually, literally, look around the room. Look at some of the people sitting close to you. Look at the people sitting in front of you. You can turn around. It won't be too awkward. I'm telling you to do it. Look at the people behind you. Okay? For everyone except one person in the room, and I won't name you, there are people younger than you in the room. And I won't name this person either, but there are also people older than you in the room. Okay? People at all different stages of life. Some people went to college, some people didn't. Some people learned a trade, some people didn't. Some people bring home a paycheck of a certain size, other people bring home a paycheck of a different size. I have strong reason to believe that if we compared your tax returns, your taxable income would not be exactly the same across the board. People have different means. You live in a world where there is a growing idea that says different means is inherently bad. You live in a world, it's fueled by greed, self, envy. You live in a world that increasingly wants you to believe that if you look around the room and see anybody who gets more, has more, makes more than you, the only reason that's true is because they have oppressed you somehow. And they are in the wrong, and something needs to be done legally to remedy that inequity. You live in a world where increasingly you are being encouraged to think along the lines of not equal opportunity, but equal outcome. Societally, it's a recipe for disaster. And the Bible simply recognizes that people have different means. Some have more, some have less. And when you give and when you're generous, you should give according to your means. Young people in the room, I'll let you define that for yourself. Young people, do not buy into the mindset that says, I can't be generous at this stage in life because I'm not in my prime earning years. Don't buy into the lie that says, I need all of my money right now. I can't be generous until I make a certain dollar amount. It's a lie. You'll never get there. Medium adults, define that as you will. Do not buy into the lie that says, I hope to be generous after I retire and my nest egg reaches a certain size. If you're in your prime working earning years, you need to be generous right where you're at in the lane you're in. Retired adults, older adults, senior adults, define that as you will. Do not buy into the lie that says, well, I've spent my whole life giving. Now I'm on a very fixed income. I don't have to be generous anymore. I don't care what stage of life you're in. I don't care the size, bigness, smallness of your paycheck. Give according to your means. Be generous according to your means. That looks different for people in different financial situations. Now, here's a second qualifier. What does it look like to be generous? Well, generosity involves sacrifice. 
sacrifice, regardless of your financial situation. This is what Paul says in verse 3, the first part, and then the next phrase. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. They gave according to what each had. They were generous. And then it was amazing, Paul says, they sacrificed. They gave beyond what they were actually able to give. They made a sacrifice in giving. A sacrifice implies that you do one thing at the expense of another. You made a sacrifice by being here this morning. You may not view it that way. You may think you came out on the better end of the deal, but you made a sacrifice by being here this morning. You could have slept in. You could have gone to have breakfast somewhere. You could have stayed home and mowed the lawn. You could have done a number of different things, but you forsook all of those opportunities in order to be here this morning. That's a sacrifice. It's the same when it comes to giving. God expects His people to give sacrificially, meaning when you give, not only is it generous according to your means, but it's a sacrifice wherein you giving the gift, you are not going to go a certain place or do a certain thing or buy a certain thing. You are giving up those opportunities because you choose joyfully to give. It's a sacrifice. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. Let's be honest. For some of the people in this room, some of the people who were in our early service, to come to church at Emmanuel and to put a $20 bill in our offering box is an incredible sacrifice for you. You have to plan weeks in ahead to do that. For others of you, you could this morning write a check for $2,000, put it in the offering box, and it would not amount to any sort of sacrifice at all. $20,000, not a sacrifice. When you read what Jesus is saying here about giving according to your means and beyond your means sacrificially, uh, you can't help but think, excuse me, what Paul's saying, you can't help but think of what Jesus said when he was at the temple and the big wigs were rolling through and they were dropping their offering in the box loudly, visibly, taking the credit, making sure everyone saw, everyone heard. And then a woman came through, a widow, with two small coins and very sheepishly and embarrassingly she dropped them in the box. And Jesus looked at his buddies and he said, buddies, fellas, you understand that she gave more than all the rest of them. They didn't make a sacrifice. They gave. Kudos to you for giving. But let's not act like it was a sacrifice. This woman gave of her means and beyond her means. She gave all that she had. It was an incredible sacrifice. So we give according to our means if we're generous. We give sacrificially if we're generous. Thirdly, generosity is something believers get to do, not something we have to do. When you're a generous person, this is the condition of your heart. You think about generosity not as a, the pastor said I have to do this, the Bible says I have to do this, but you see it as something that you get to do. And did you notice what Paul said at the end of verse 3? He says, they gave according to their means, beyond their means, of their own accord. 
Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged for the opportunity to give. When's the last time you begged? I don't mean standing out on the street corner saying, can I have five bucks, we'll work for food, hungry. I'm not talking about that kind of begging. When is the last time you begged another person for something? Maybe you were a child and birthday was coming up or Christmas was coming up. And maybe you had your eyes on a certain toy and you thought, you know what, I think that's a little bit beyond my range, but I'm going to just beg. Please, please. Maybe it was with your boss or your employer and you went in and you begged for extra days off or for a raise in your pay and you said, please, this is really a big deal, I need this. Maybe since I've been talking about football and talking about the Dallas Cowboys, maybe you've been begging this morning, God, please, could the Cowboys win one playoff game in my lifetime? Please let them win. We beg for all sorts of things. These Christians begged for the privilege and the opportunity of giving to this offering. Paul didn't have to twist their arm. He didn't have to guilt them. He didn't have to shame them. They begged for the privilege in modeling generosity. Now, we've been talking about football. Let me call a timeout, okay? We're going to come back to the passage. I just want to call a timeout. I want to talk about three questions that people ask me fairly regularly Two really regularly and one that will lead us into the the rest of this passage. Where should my giving go towards? Who should I give to? How much should I give? And why should I do it in the first place? Okay? The Bible talks about all of these questions. It does not talk about all of these questions here, but they're related to the, the issue of stewardship, and I just want to address them quickly. Number one, where should you give? I think the Christians giving, their generous giving, should start with their local church. You say, of course you do. You're the pastor and we pay your salary. That's very convenient for you. It is very convenient for me. I also think it's biblical. In the New Testament, Jesus promised to build one institution, just one, the church. There's all sorts of ministries, parachurch organizations, missions agencies out there. Many of them are great. Many of them are wonderful. Some of them are not. But the church is the one institution that Jesus promised to build. The church is manifested in local congregations. And local congregations, local churches, are the one organization that every Christian is called to be a part of. You don't all have to be part of Campus Crusade for Christ. You don't have to all be part of the Salvation Army. You don't have to all be part of the Permian Basin Mission Center. There's all sorts of organizations out there that do amazing, wonderful work. The church is the one organization Jesus promised to build, the one organization every Christian is called to be a part of. So I think the Christian's giving ought to start, not end, but start with their local church. At Emmanuel, we have a budget. Put together by our finance team and elders, voted on you, voted on by you, and supported by regular tithes and offerings. When you give to our church, you're supporting ministry at your 
church, ministry that happens in this room, in these hallways, in this city, and around the world. So I think that's where it ought to start. Then I think it ought to go to places like our world missions offering, where we say all of that money is leaving our building, and you're faithful to give to that. I think it ought to extend to backpacks for kids in our community. It ought to extend to food for people in our community who are hungry. It ought to extend to any number of other organizations, the Gideons, Nourishing the Nations, the Permian Basin Mission Center, people who are doing gospel work. It starts with your church, and then it spreads out. Now you say, okay, how much am I on the hook for? A lot of you have a personality like me, very black and white, type A. And what you're thinking in your brain is, Pastor, this is great. I just need a percentage. I just need you to give me a number. It's 10%, isn't it? Isn't it 10%? I've heard that all my life. It's 10%. Well, you're right. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant talks about a tithe, a gift of 10%. Talks about it in the life of Abram, Abraham. Talks about it in the law of God, instructions for Israel. You will not find anything about a tithe in the New Testament. You will not find Paul telling the church, I'm going to need 10%. You will not find Jesus saying, I'm going to need to give you 10%. What you will find is Jesus assuming his people are going to give. And Paul saying, you need to be generous according to your means. And you need to give sacrificially. And here's the honest truth. Honest truth. For some of you, giving 10% would be a great challenge. It would be really tricky. You'd have to change some things immediately, drastically. For others of you, let's be real honest, people in our church, maybe people in Odessa, others could probably live on 10% and give away 90%. You know, there's people that do that. They call it a reverse tithe. God's blessed me so much, I just need the 10 and He can have back the 90. And what we want is a number, a percentage. Is it on the gross? Is it on the net? Can you break it down? Can I have a spreadsheet? The answer to all of those questions is no. You live in the new covenant, and the call on your life is to be generous. It's not your money, it's God's money. The question is not how much of God's money are you going to give away. The question is how much of God's money are you going to keep for yourself? So be generous. Give according to your means. Give sacrificially and view it as something you get to do, not something you have to do. That brings us to this last question, why? And some of you like to get ahead in the reading. And some of you have already flipped over to 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 where it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And some of you are saying, there's my out. I'm not cheerful. You don't want me to be a hypocrite, do you, pastor? If I'm not cheerful about it, I guess I better just hang on to it. Maybe one of these days I'll be cheerful. You understand that goes against everything Paul's saying in this passage, especially if you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, someone who has been saved by His grace. I think a better approach would be 
to start giving generously and to pray that God would help you learn these lessons. Two more lessons you need to see. Being a good steward and giving generously come after you have given yourself to the Lord, not before. What I'm saying here is if you think you can give your way into God's good graces, you think you can give your way into heaven, you've gotten the whole thing backwards. Notice what Paul says about the church in Macedonia. Verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Did they give to the offering? Yes, generously, according to their means, beyond their means, sacrificially. But the first thing they gave was themselves to the Lord. Listen, I've looked in the eyes of a man who made millions of dollars in the oil business. doesn't live in Odessa. He doesn't live in Texas. He lives outside the state. And I appreciated his honesty. Pastors usually don't get a lot of honesty from people. He just looked me in the eye and said, Preacher, God and I have a deal. I'm going to give a lot of money, and then I'm going to be good with him. I said, Well, I appreciate the honesty. You're wrong, but I appreciate the honesty. I've also talked to people just in the last month who gave a very small dollar amount. It wasn't millions. It wasn't even a hundred bucks. It wasn't even fifty bucks. Very small amount. But they genuinely believed that in giving it, they were earning something with God. They genuinely thought, I'm going to do this so that God will do something for me. I'm going to give this so that God will be happy with me. I'm going to give this so that God will love me. It wasn't a big check. It wasn't a big dollar amount, but it was the exact same motivation as the man who said, I give millions of dollars so that God will love me. It's the same motivation at heart, and it's completely backwards. It is foolish, foolish for you to think that you can buy your way into heaven. For one thing, the Bible says you actually have a debt with God, sin debt. And it's so great that you will never be able to pay it. It's so great that the Lord Jesus Christ left the throne of heaven, was born as a man, lived a life of perfect obedience, and died as a sacrifice to redeem you, to purchase you, to pay your debt. God doesn't need you to pay off anything. God Himself came to pay your debt. It's foolish for you to think you can buy your way into heaven, not just because you can't pay your own sin debt, but also because God owns everything anyways. It's all His. In the early 1900s, there was a prime minister of the Netherlands named Abraham Kuyper. He was a Christian, and about two decades earlier, he gave a speech at the opening of a university, and he said these words. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. It's all His. You understand that? All of it. Have you seen the pictures coming back from the James Webb telescope? James Webb telescope is like the Hubble telescope on steroids. And it's out there in space, and it's looking into the heavens, and it's looking at galaxies and stars and planets and 
all sorts of things, and it's sending back these images, and they're absolutely breathtaking. And you understand that every time these images come back and people share them on social media and say, look at this, look at this, we've never seen this, we've never seen it this clearly, we've never seen it this far away, you understand that Jesus says, oh yeah, that's mine. Also mine. Also mine. It's all His. The Bible says, Genesis 1, Psalm 8, John 1, Revelation 4, that everything that exists was created by God. The Bible says very clearly in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the one upholding the universe by the word of His power. Everything that James Webb Telescope sends back to earth is currently being upheld by Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1 very clearly says that all of it was created for Jesus Christ. It's all His. And you think your check is going to give Him something that He lacks or needs? It's foolish. It's foolish. First, you give yourself to the Lord, the Creator of everything and the Savior of the world. First, you give yourself to Him, and then you give generously. One last truth. Our deepest motivation to generosity is the grace of God revealed through Jesus Christ. This word grace keeps popping up in our passage and in what follows. Verse 1, Paul says he's talking about the grace of God in these churches in Macedonia. Verse 7, he talks about this act of grace. Then in verse 9, he defines grace. All of their giving is a result of grace. It's an act of grace. But let's get to the real definition of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. A Christian is a person who believes that God created everything. A Christian is a person who believes and understands that they are a sinner, and they have a debt with God that they cannot pay. A Christian is a person who believes that the Lord Jesus Christ left the throne of heaven where he was rich to become poor, to suffer, to die as a sacrifice so that poor sinners like us might in the end be rich. No, I'm not talking about your 401k. No, I'm not talking about your nest egg. No, I'm not talking about your W-2 form. I'm talking about riches far greater than any of that. He became poor that we who are poor might become rich. Christian is a person who believes that. If you've never believed that good news, that gospel news, we pray that you would believe it this morning. We also pray that you would understand that a Christian is a person who wants to be like Jesus. Their heart has been transformed. There is a new self that's been born. And not only has their sin debt been paid, but the orientation of their life has been changed, and they want to be like Jesus. 
Paul assumes that's true here when he talks about Jesus in the context of giving. And he says, look, do you really want the answer to the why question? Why should you give? Well, the Lord Jesus. Do you want to be like the Lord Jesus? He was rich. He became poor so that others might become rich. In the same way, the church in Macedonia did this, and he hoped the church in Corinth would do it. You should be generous with your money. You should not cling to your money, but you should be generous with your money just like God has been generous to you in Jesus Christ.